Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, June 17th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. A ranking of the top 10 best places in our solar system to find extraterrestrial life. Plus, you know about the food pyramid, but what about the nature pyramid, also called the 25-3 rule? And I guess we have to talk about that Jeff Bezos eating the Mona Lisa petition. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Extraterrestrial life is extremely in vogue this year, so the good folks over at the MIT Technology Review decided to rank the top 10 best places in our solar system to find aliens. Except, of course, by aliens, they don't mean sentient creatures who are secretly scheming to become our overlords. No, we're talking about the good stuff. Primitive bacteria, maybe even some microbes. Maybe less exciting to some, but certainly less terrifying. We don't have to call up Will Smith to save us from primitive bacteria. And just to underscore this point, a new computer simulation published in the American Astronomical Society this month showed that a technologically advanced civilization could colonize the entire galaxy in a fairly modest amount of time. Which, okay, by modest, they mean a billion years, but that's only about 8% of the total age of our galaxy. Which is just to say that other civilizations have had plenty of time to take over by now, so maybe they're not gonna, or aren't out there. Whatever the case, there's a lot more evidence we can look at for the possibility of less exciting life, like microbes. And by constraining the list just to our solar system, the MIT Tech Review cut out a lot of possibilities, but their ranking specifically takes into account places where we might find life, not just where life may exist or have existed in the past. We've got the ability to send probes to any of the moons, planets, and whatnot in our solar system, which could mean getting far more up close and personal than we ever could with various imaging strategies for exoplanets. We could even gather up samples to bring back Earthside to study. So at least for now, our chances of finding life within our solar system are far greater than outside of it. So without any further ado, the official ranking. Coming in 10th place, Neptune's largest moon, Triton. Being all the way out near Neptune, it's a very cold moon, but, quoting the MIT Tech Review, its surface is mostly frozen nitrogen, and its crust is made of water ice, and it has an icy mantle. This is a cold, cold world. But in spite of that, it seems to get some heat generated by tidal forces, gravitational friction between Triton and Neptune, and that could help warm up the waters and give rise to life through any organics that might exist on the moon. End quote. Unfortunately, Triton keeps getting passed over for other NASA missions. Voyager 2 went there in 1989, but there hasn't been another one since then, and a mission to Triton was not included in NASA's recent announcement of their upcoming slate of approved proposals. So, next up in ninth place is Ceres, the dwarf planet located between Mars and Jupiter. Data from NASA's Dawn probe from 2018 suggests a possible ocean 25 miles beneath the surface, and the presumed saltiness would keep the water from freezing, and Dawn did find evidence of organic compounds on Ceres which could serve as raw materials for life. 
But the MIT Tech Review says there are too many unanswered questions here with how new the data is. Even if there does turn out to be subsurface water and organic materials, quote, it would need to be some source of heat and energy that could actually help encourage that water and organic material to react in such a way that it leads to life. And even if that occurred, finding life means we have to drill at least two dozen miles into the ground to access that water and study it. And lastly, Ceres is tiny, more than 13 times smaller than Earth. It's not yet clear how that fraction of gravity could affect life on the dwarf planet, but if Earth is our compass for what's habitable, Ceres' small size is probably not an asset. End quote. Alright, so what about number 8, Jupiter's moon Io, aka the most geologically active world in the solar system, thanks mostly to its 400 active volcanoes. It's thought that Io has a subsurface ocean as well, but it's not made of water. Its ocean would be made of magma. Yeah, just try playing the floor is lava on Io. No way. With that, plus sulfur and sulfur dioxide frost coating most of the planet, the chances of life seem slim, but heat is good for life, and if there are some places we haven't identified yet that have escaped the fiery wrath of the volcanoes, you know, perhaps some temperate little pockets here or there, there's a chance some type of life could survive there. But moving along to number 7, another moon of Jupiter, Callisto, proud owner of the oldest surface in the solar system and possibly a bonus subsurface ocean. It even has a thin atmosphere of hydrogen, carbon dioxide, and oxygen, which the MIT Tech Review points out is more Earth-like than most moons in our solar system. But Callisto is very cold. The reason it's edged up to number 7 is because, unlike the previous three who keep getting picked over for missions, Callisto will actually get a moment to shine next year when it will be one of three moons explored by an upcoming European Space Agency mission with my new favorite name, Jupiter's Icy Moon Explorer, or JUICE. Maybe something's lost in translation, but it seems like they completely disregarded the M for moon so that they could just spell out JUICE as the acronym, and I'm here for it. And continuing on our tour of Jupiter's moons, number six on this list is Jupiter's and our solar system's largest moon, Ganymede. Also part of JUICE, which means it is also very icy, but Ganymede also has a subsurface saltwater ocean that possibly has more water than all of Earth's oceans combined. And it's also got a thin oxygen atmosphere and even a magnetic field, something no other moon in the solar system has. But despite being a part of JUICE where a lot of data will be collected, a subsurface ocean is a tough thing to study. So if that's where the life is lurking, we may have a tough time finding it and no plans to try just yet. Now, number five, finally breaking our streak of moons, is Venus, an actual planet and one poised to get a lot of attention in the coming years with NASA's recently announced two missions to study it. Often referred to as a hellscape due to its extremely high surface temperatures, literally hot enough to melt lead, Venus could have some type of microbial life in its clouds. You might remember all the chatter a few months ago about phosphine gas being detected in the atmosphere, something that could be a sign of life, and how that study got a lot of pushback. Even if we err on the side of there being no phosphine in Venus's atmosphere, there have been other studies looking at the planet's history of water, for example. It's a lot of long shots, but we're going to get a whole bunch of data back to give us a much better understanding one way or another soon. 
For number four on the list, we are back to moons, but this time from Saturn. The most reflective world in the solar system due to its 100% clean ice cover, Enceladus. Quoting again, Its surface is ice cold, but there's quite a bit of activity going on underneath. The moon ejects plumes that contain a myriad of different compounds, including saltwater, ammonia, and organic molecules like methane and propane. Enceladus is thought to have a global salty ocean, and NASA's found evidence of hydrothermal activity deep underground, which could very well provide a source of heat that's necessary to give life a chance to evolve and thrive. End quote. So, sounds super promising, but once again, we're hampered by the fact that there are no current plans to study it further, so we're left in the dark for now. Moving on to the top three, ranking in third place is Saturn's largest moon, Titan. Titan's got it all, a subsurface ocean, tons of organic materials, plus lakes, rivers, and seas, all made of methane and hydrocarbons. All of that and its own upcoming NASA mission. The Dragonfly mission, launching in 2027 and landing in 2034, will send a drone helicopter to explore the moon's atmosphere. And coming up in second place is Jupiter's moon Europa. Boasting a 10 to 15 mile thick icy shell and a subsurface ocean heated by tidal forces. That heating keeps waters moving in a sort of circulation system that refreshes the icy surface regularly, meaning we may not have to penetrate those 10 to 15 miles of ice to get to the ocean to study it because signs of life could be brought up to the surface. Quoting again, Scientists have found deposits of clay-like minerals associated with organic materials on Europa, and it's suspected that radiation hitting the icy surface could result in oxygen that might find its way into the subsurface oceans and be used for emerging life. All the ingredients for life are potentially here. End quote. And what's more, Europa is the third moon included in JUICE. Plus, it's got its own NASA mission scheduled to launch in 2024 called Europa Clipper, which will study its surface and subsurface. And now for number one, you could probably guess it, with all the attention it's gotten over the years, it's gotta be... Mars. Quoting the Tech Review... We know it was once habitable billions of years ago, when it had lakes and rivers of liquid water on its surface. We know it had a robust atmosphere back then to keep things warm and comfy. And we currently have a rover on the surface, Perseverance, whose express goal is to look for signs of ancient life. End quote. And if there are signs of ancient life, there could currently be life there still. Probably deep underground, but with how many space agencies around the globe are focused on Mars, I'm sure we'll get to it if we see a reason to try. Outdated as it may be, we're all familiar with the food pyramid, the triangle divided into sections with groups of food indicating how much you should have of each each day to live a nutritious life. Well, about 10 years ago, Tanya Denkla-Cobb from the University of Virginia came up with the Nature Pyramid. It's since been adapted in a lot of different ways, but the concept remains about the same. It's a visualization of how much time you should spend in different types of nature. At the base of the original pyramid is whatever kind of nature you can find in your neighborhood, and something that you should be doing roughly every day. Next, about weekly, is going slightly beyond that, maybe a hiking trail or a beach a bit further away. Monthly, you'll want to go to something even more wild and out of range. And once a year or so, try to hit up an environment completely foreign to you, like a desert if you're from a coastal area, for example. 
That's roughly how Denklacob envisioned it, but like I said, it's been adapted by lots of other experts toward other purposes, and I particularly like this formula mentioned by Michael Easter in his new book, The Comfort Crisis, Embrace Discomfort to Reclaim Your Wild, Happy, Healthy Self. Easter spoke with Rachel Hopman, a neuroscientist at Northeastern University, who advised him on the 25-3 rule, a version of the nature pyramid. For the 25-3 rule, you should spend 20 minutes outside in that neighborhood level of nature three times a week. Five hours a month should be spent in semi-wild nature, so something like a state park, and then three days a year you should go off the grid. Quoting Easter in an excerpt from his book published in Men's Health, In nature, our brains enter a mode called soft fascination. Hopman described it as a mindfulness-like state that restores and builds the resources you need to think, create, process information, and execute tasks. It's mindfulness without the meditation. End quote. And something as quick and simple as a 20-minute walk through a city garden can start that soft fascination. Research has shown that 20 minutes in nature three times a week, quote, had the greatest effect on reducing an urban dweller's levels of the stress hormone cortisol, end quote. But, Hopman warns, people who used their phones during that 20 minutes did not reap hardly any of the cognitive and emotional benefits. Now, the five hours a month in a semi-wild space relates back to two Finnish studies conducted in 2005 and 2014, and the first found that five hours was the minimum required for city dwellers to experience benefits of exposure to nature, and the second study found that the wilder the nature, the higher the benefits. As far as the three days a year off the grid, which Easter describes as a camping trip or renting a cabin, somewhere, quote, characterized by spotty cell reception and wild animals, end quote, taking time away in nature is proven to reduce stress levels and boost things like creativity and problem solving. One study, quote, found that U.S. military vets who spent four days whitewater rafting were still buzzing off the wild a week later. Their PTSD symptoms and stress levels were down 29 and 21 percent, respectively. Their relationships, happiness, and general satisfaction with their lives all improved as well, end quote. So 20, 5, 3. 20 minutes in nature like a park or a garden three times a week, five hours a month on a hiking trail or something, and then three days a year off the grid. Not always doable for everyone, but I like it as something to strive for. Online petitions can really run the gamut, from the extremely important to the totally inane, and this latest one is just bizarre, at least on the surface. At the time of recording, almost 9,000 people have signed a petition on Change.org called We Want Jeff Bezos to Buy and Eat the Mona Lisa, and the description simply reads, quote, Nobody has eaten the Mona Lisa, and we feel Jeff Bezos needs to take a stand and make this happen. End quote. Yep, that's it. <laughs> now, AV Club had a pretty impressive hypothesis on the reason for this petition, quoting them, In Red Dragon, a Thomas Harris novel that's been adapted as Manhunter, a 2002 film directed by Brett Ratner, and as a story arc in Hannibal, a serial killer named Francis Dollarhide, who's obsessed with William Blake, attempts to control his murderous impulses by eating the original The Great Red Dragon and the Woman Clothed in Sun. 
In 2021, an American musician has started a petition that prompted Vice to question whether a more hands-off style of monster, Amazon's Jeff Bezos, could replicate this trick using Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa, end quote. Pretty solid guess for why this petition exists, all things considered. But no, the real origin story, as told by the petition's creator, Kane Powell, to Vice is, quote, from what I remember, some friends and I were all at Applebee's, kind of when COVID had just started. Amazon was in the headlines again, and we started talking about how Jeff Bezos could buy the Mona Lisa just because he has the money to do it, because that would make a huge statement, end quote. Powell doesn't remember how they got the joke to the point of Bezos then eating the painting, although he does admit that they were dipping into the dollar drink menu at the time, but says they just posted the petition for fun, and for a year, nothing really happened. Now that the petition's taking off, Vice decided to investigate whether Bezos actually could buy and eat the painting. Now, if the Louvre was willing to part with it, Bezos, the second richest man in the world, could afford it no problem. No matter which way Vice tried to calculate how much it would cost, Bezos can afford it. But as far as eating it, well, it's painted on wood and covered with a thick coat of lead primer, which, you know, is super poisonous. The pigments in the paint are also made from a bunch of other stuff you shouldn't eat, like tin oxide, bone dust, crushed beetle shells, and mercury sulfide. Though, Vice does helpfully point out that a Mona Lisa replica, the infamous hecking Mona Lisa, is currently on auction at Christie's. It's going for about $242,000 to $363,000 right now, which, as Vice points out, quote, is roughly what Jeffy makes every two and a half minutes, end quote. So maybe he could at least eat that replica. That way, we all get to see him eat a painting, and the Louvre doesn't have to lose out on the tens of millions of dollars a month it apparently makes just for housing the original. And if all of this got you in a dunking on Jeff Bezos mood, I put a link in the show notes to a clip from the Today Show in Australia from earlier this month in which the anchors couldn't stop laughing after being shown the shape of Bezos' Blue Origin rocket, which he'll be going up in next month. That is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.